Hello there, welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. It's Monday, March the 8th. I hope you're well. Thank you for hitting on the button. Thank you to the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installation. Just slightly out of breath, I've realised still from my, from my labouring jog this morning after we dropped my little girl back at school. Sorry about that. Um, it's quite interesting how you don't realise till you start talking that maybe it's still a little winded, uh, obviously out of a bit of shape. It's layered up, got hot and sweaty. Good to, good to get moving on a Monday though. But big thanks to Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV for their support of the podcast. Coming up for a year now and I believe in that time, uh, it was going for roughly for a couple of years before, just a bit of fun, but we've now managed to I think in that time, treble the listenership from this time last year, really gone up and also just committed me to it and sent me on, on getting these up regularly and having conversations with people who I find interesting and hopefully you, the listener, find interesting. So thank you to Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham. Follow them on B&O Cheltenham Twitter, B&O Cheltenham on Instagram as well. Latest videos of the Bang Olufsen equipment, but through that company, Serene AV as well, can source you other home entertainment systems, other equipment, whatever your needs are. Get in touch with Jason Briggs and his team through the Bang Olufsen Cheltenham website or the social media accounts. Thank you to Cytoplan for their association with the podcast as well. Food-based supplements that we as the Drapers have been using for 20 years under the stewardship of my father, Dr. Mark Draper, who's a GP and micronutritionist particularly focused on things like selenium in the soil, zinc, those uh, issues that he believes have, have basically diminished those qualities, those micronutrients, because of the over-rotation of crops in the industrial age of farming. So he's a big supporter of Cytoplan. We take a multivitamin at the moment called Immune Complete, Immune Complete 1 for the women in the family, particularly the menstruating women who need iron, but Immune Complete 2 for the men. And there's things like Immunovite for young children as well with uh, Cytoplan. But if you head to cytoplan.co.uk, obviously there's fish oil, a range of supplements, glucosamine, if you're concerned about your joints, if you're jogging like me, potentially, or, or whatever you may be looking for, it's there at cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk. And if you go there, you can get 10% ongoing discount, but I think it's 30% still off your first purchase. And that's obviously however many supplements you order is all included in that first purchase. It is Draper10R is a discount code. D-R-A-P-E-R, my last name, all capital letters, the numbers one and zero, and then the capital letter R, which is actually for my middle name. I don't think it is deliberately, but my middle name is Russell, so it works. Um, anyway, let's get on to the podcast today. Good guy, John Driscoll, known him for Sky, at Sky Sports for a long time, had conversations about football, particularly I've known him as a La Liga, Spanish football commentator, when we had the rights at Sky, still works there doing Premier League highlights and talented commentator, real aficionado of the game, loves the game of football. And this is reflected in his new book, The 50, the 50 most influential players going all the way back to the 1860s, right up to the modern day and Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, among others. And N'Golo Kante as well, I noticed on the list. It's interesting, the people that have made it. But John Driscoll, it's a fascinating book. I love my football history. I used to read books, watch VHS, the world's greatest players, those kind of things, going back to the early 20th century when I was a kid. Um, not when I was a kid, I was in the early 20th century, but when I was a kid in the 90s, <laughs> going back. And I think it's interesting over the last 160 years how football's changed and the big key players that, that changed it, both culturally and technically with what they did on the field as well. Um, this is men and women too, as well. People like Lillian Para are considered here, and Megan Rapino as well makes the uh, the list on the book. The USA striker who's come to the light so spectacularly 
and to uh, remind us of human rights issues and equality over the past few years. Well, this is it. This is a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it too. Good man, John Driscoll. Look up that book as well, The 50. John Driscoll, welcome to the Sport and Life podcast. How are you this morning? I'm, I'm excellent, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to talk football, of course, which you're a massive aficionado as the book, The 50, demonstrates. But you do have a table tennis um, <laughs> uh, table behind you as well this morning. So you've obviously been, you've been keeping fit, keeping active during the lockdown with that. I, I, listen, I'm, I'm claiming no expertise in table tennis. My, my 13-year-old son is better than I am now, which irks ever so slightly. But um, it's, 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 and it's a mini one as well. Before people think I'm so wealthy that I've got, you know, I've got a full-size <laughs> snooker table here and a, and a full-size table tennis table there. We've got a mini one. Uh, am I keeping fit? Sort of. Yeah. Um, I think the everyday. Yeah, I think you lose a lot by not walking around mm. every day. I think so. I've been. I've made an effort to go out. So I've been yeah. out running. And the other day, I, I got up. I did twelve k the other day. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonable. Yeah. I'm a reasonable Nick. But it's it, but it's hard though. I'm, mm. you know, I'm finding the recovery harder, mm. and um, and I don't know why. You know, you know, because you're sitting around, sitting down more. You think maybe that's part I think, of yeah. yeah. I, I think it is literally that. And yet, you know, in our line of work, we're not exactly we're not exactly miners, <laughs> are we? You know, no. at the coalface, <laughs> uh, sweating all day long. But I don't know. There is something about the 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 lockdown life and I think the other thing is because my wife's a teacher and the kids are at home as well so yeah. I think you've had to we've had to sort of uh, I, I eat very healthily when I'm on my own as well so I think mm. that's pretty a slight compromise in that you know I, I just eat a lot of sort of vegetable stir fry for lunch normally that kind of thing yeah so a very bit good. more compromise of finding other things to the you know the whole of the of the the, the family can uh, can eat together. Although uh, my daughter and I, I've, I we've just um, turned vegan for we're, we're, we're giving it a forty day trial, basically. Okay, wow, very uh, cool. And so we'll we'll you know we'll we'll see how we go. Um, you, are you and, taking vitamin B twelve supplements? That all I, that's all I hear about is that you you, you should look at B twelve as a if you I, are going no, for the first because, time. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I know is the answer. So mm. I, I, I take some vitamins anyway. If yeah, you know, it if, might if be I'm in there. Go yeah. For, yeah, so if I'm going to go for a long run, I, I will, um, which will be you know giving me some kind of boost i'm waiting to see mm. uh, and and so far so it's been a couple of weeks uh, i i'm neither i don't feel better or worse which is why 40 days is probably a good um <laughs> trial to, so I, I start to I, I might get an idea of how, what difference it's made yeah interesting yeah interesting if you lose weight as well because actually what's interesting mm. is the two extremes carnivore or vegan people often report weight loss but apparently that's partially because often because you have uh, adopting a philosophy which can be a little bit restrictive if you're out and about and, and trying to buy food that you end up eating less calories so it can be can quite an interesting mm. sort of transition and see how you how you find that aspect of it yeah i took a photograph of the scales i stood on the scales on day one and took a photograph so i'll <laughs> see because it, my, my weight had crept up a bit mm. um from you know, well, my if you if you want my traumatic injury history, I broke my leg playing football a few years ago, oh, wow. um, and so yeah, so it was it was so my weight has crept. I mean, just a bit, you know. I'm still yeah. on the I'm still on the the slim side of you know. But you, um, very svelte to me. But that's the problem with playing football as we get older, isn't it? We love it. And I, I think it's the thing I miss most is five side football in lockdown. But there is that injury component that can sometimes restrict your life and your and your work in normal times. Yeah, I mean that was just unlucky, you know. That, that it, what was happening because uh, I was forty four when that happened. Mm. I was beginning to enjoy it less because of the endless niggles, the, you know, the the hamstring, the ankle, and trying to sort of play football and run. Were you playing the, eleven aside? 
no, no, it was just no. playing. So I, I, I retreated into the lads down the leisure centre kind of stuff. <laughs> In fact, it was outdoors. Uh, and it was at, uh, the, we've got a, a college not far from where we live. And it was sort of a, I think it's sort of eight aside pitch, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's a mate of mine, actually. I, I nicked the ball off him and he turned to to shoot. And I just nicked the ball away and, and he went right through the bottom of my leg, took, my, took the bottom half of my leg off, basically. It was, just, yeah. it was quite grim. Um, and so obviously from, from being very fit before that, it, it was a slow road back. Um, metal work in and then a year or so later out metal work back out again which I would recommend by the way if anyone ever breaks a leg if you know, if, if speak to the medics if they can get the metal work out it frees your legs back up again oh, fantastic. Um, so so it's it was a question of building back up again so you know so uh, I'm, I'm keeping an eye I'm not I'm not I'm not doing the veganism to lose weight but I'll see if it's a side effect yeah and that'd be really interesting to, to see how, how it goes and, and so you said you don't feel a big difference yet no, but then I didn't. I, I ate reasonably healthily anyway. You know, mm. I did my best to. So, and I, and I wasn't. A, you know, she she was my daughter was already a vegetarian, mm. so we were already cooking two meals anyway. So, it wasn't like you know I wasn't uh, on the at the burger van every morning anyway. <laughs> so, it, you know, I don't feel that it's been a massive change or a massive shock. But uh, like I say, you know, it's been a couple of weeks. We'll give it a forty days, and then we'll we'll see how we feel. Yeah, you can definitely do it with the protein and chickpeas and things like that. There's ways mm. of of doing it, I think, and I'm increasingly sort of looking at those options. And just variety, like I say, the, the quality of the food often, and if you can eat organic and fresh produce, seems to be what a lot of people have been on the podcast and said is is possibly the key for for health. And then people have the, their own ethics and things around it. And partly, sometimes you're having locally sourced organic meat. There's obviously an ethical aspect to that versus uh, the mass-produced stuff as well. But it's a it's a complex picture. That it's interesting you mentioned recovery because there's a guy in who's actually a friend of ours, but he's a handyman. He was coming in to do some work in our kitchen. And he was saying that he's struggled with, he's always been a super fit guy with running and things, but recovering. I wonder whether it's partly the low level stress and anxiety, both of uh, the multitude of things, homeschooling being part of that, as you, as you say, but maybe just the, the sort of health anxiety, the economic anxiety at the moment. I wonder whether that plays into our just recovery as well. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And the, the other thing that I need to do, I think, just need to be braver about the cold bath, I think, after, after intense yeah. exercise. Um, <laughs> It's just, it's not pleasant. No one likes the moment of getting in, but I think it does work when I've done it. Mm. You know, when I, I ran the marathon, well, it'd be ten years ago now, and I I was using ice baths then because you're doing such intense exercise. Obviously, you know, you yeah. might be doing like a fifteen mile run, and then a few days later you got to do a ten mile run. Wow! And so, um, so yeah, I think you just need something to get the old muscles going. And I obviously, if you're a pro, you'd be getting massages all the time as well, wouldn't you? Mm. But, um, um, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit more costly for for ordinary mortals, isn't it? So the, the cold <laughs> bath is a painful alternative. It certainly is. Um, before we get into the book, and I've got a constant reminder of it here in front of me, with John Driscoll, the fifty, <laughs> is your screensaver as we're talking with with audio only on. Um, and I've I've really enjoyed what I've read of it in the PDF you sent across, and looking forward to seeing the finished product of the actual book. I can see the cover now. Um, but in general, what's the life been the past year now? Which is incredible, isn't it? That we're entering the year since the, the pandemic really stopped football for the in the first instance, what's life been like as a, a freelance football commentator? Yeah, so I've, I've been lucky, Ed, to be honest with you. So the first, obviously when football shut down, I'm almost entirely reliant on football. Mm. Uh, so when it first shut down, that wasn't good. But at that time, I then got the agreement to, to, to write the book for, for pitch publishing. Oh, and so time. basically I spent the first lockdown because it's beautiful weather. I'm lucky enough to have a nice garden. So almost all of it sitting in the garden reading football books and I read an incredible number of football books <laughs> um, and so then I and then I wrote the book basically uh, so that was that sort of the first lockdown and the early part of football coming back 
Uh, and then I'm also fortunate enough, as you know, the reason you and I know each other is, is that we both work at Sky. And so mm. I, I've done a lot of work with the Sky. I've got a, a brilliant football video team who produce a lot of stuff for the YouTube channel, a lot of stuff that you see on social media. And as part of that, uh, we produce a, a roundup of all the Premier League games. And yep. so whenever there's Premier League games on, whenever there's more than one Premier League game a night, I basically do a, a summary of it and I do a little highlights package. So I'm working from here. And then there's a, one of the, the guys, one of the team, they're, they're all working from home as well. So it's, it's an interesting <laughs> dynamic. And I miss, I really miss going in and sitting there because on a Saturday, it was really good on a Saturday in there. Yes. You had a big bank of screens, you know, every Premier League game on, all sorts of stuff. There'd be 20 people all doing work, all sitting watching football. And, and it, was, it was fun, good, you know, you know, good set of people who all love their football. And it was, so I miss that. But I'm still working because I'm still doing my bit remotely, sending Good. voice tracks off and all of that. Yeah, so, I've done, yeah, I've done a little yeah. bit of that. It's interesting working with uh, covering some MMA and boxing and working with Mark Farrell, who you know in the digital department yes, as yeah. well, Faz. And yeah, it's, I've luckily been going into Sky Sports News, and that's ramped up in in recent months and possibly will in the next few because people have had to take holiday that was uh, they were trying to store up, and now it seems with with Boris's announcement that we're not going to be back until the end of the holiday year. But it's interesting that. Or, or allowed out, out completely and taking holidays until the end of the, the year, uh, the leave year. So it's, it's interesting complexion, that working remotely and how you miss that sort of vibrance and, and energy. What was your background in terms of getting into commentary? Did you start in local radio at games covering, covering football? Yeah, so I, I was a news journalist initially. So mm. I, my, my degree is in politics. I was a news journalist for a few years, but I didn't really like the news. I, I found no. it frustrating unfulfilling uh, I never understood where the news agenda came from and how you could affect it as a young person if I'd cracked on and, and gone into trying to become an editor maybe that that might have been a different thing but I was always a football fan I always went to I always went to watch Middlesbrough I always played football whenever I could and so I I then started volunteering at weekends and so that mm. was that was it working with with uh, a guy called Alistair Brownlee who was legend in the Teesside area yeah. no one's heard of him outside but he was absolute legend in, in the Teesside area and dear old Malcolm Allison as well mm. uh, so they were the, they were the first guys that wow. um, uh, I, I, I worked with back then. that BBC radio uh, so that was we. I was at Century Radio, which doesn't exist anymore, I believe. So, and uh, they they nicked the rights away from the BBC controversially. Um, and so I was doing pitch side stuff initially. So that was my first bit of that, just to try and get some experience. Mm. Um, and then I managed to to make. Oh, and then I went to work. <laughs> this new thing called uh, websites came along. So <laughs> it's showing how old I am now. Ed. Yeah, no, um, I was there. I that. <laughs> so uh, Newcastle and Middlesbrough uh, football clubs both got websites, and so I was employed. I'm not very techie, but I was employed to to do the football content basically on yeah. those two. So I was doing commentaries on them as. Well. Well, and and do broadcasting stuff as well as written stuff, and that, and that was then, effectively TV commentary, was it? Rather than uh, no, there's no, because the difference, yeah. difference as you learn, isn't there? After bits yeah. of commentary, but between TV when you're talking over pictures to radio when you when you're painting a picture. Yeah, yeah. So I I'm not that experienced at radio commentary to be honest with you, because then I went to talk radio as was, and then from there. While I was there, it turned out I was recruited at Talk Radio as part of a secret plot. I didn't realise this at the time what? to 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 axe Talk Radio because they they swung the axe and they sacked everyone 
um, over, overnight. It's Kelvin McKenzie's day, day basically. Okay. Uh, and it's like two days before Christmas or something. They, so it they became talk sport. Is that... Yeah, and it became talk sport. And so we launched that. And so that they wanted to recruit some sports people, some, you know, good sports all rounders. Mm. Um, so I did everything at talk sport in the early days. So I was doing a little bit of commentary, but I was doing a lot of reporting, producing some games. Uh, I worked on the Hawksby and Jacobs, which is now, you know, a, a legend of British broadcasting. So I was involved with with that, getting those guys set up and going in the very beginning. Yeah. Um, um, and then it was only really when I left there and went freelance that I really tried to concentrate on doing the on doing the commentary. And so my first, so then I went to Five Live doing uh, freelance stuff and doing some sports extra games, yep. which was a new thing at the time. And my break into telecommentary was really going to Italy and working on the Italian world feed. So I used to fly out to Italy. So I was, I was juggling doing BBC games for the radio, wow. you know, doing the reporting live from games and doing some uh, grandstand stuff, live from final score, live from games. Uh, we're going out to Italy for a couple of weekends. S- Serie A. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and going out to, to Rome, basically, and then commentating there. And then from there, I managed to get a, enough experience and enough a, a demo tape together to, to give to Sky. <laughs> Because uh, I was working for Sky Sports News at the same time, juggling everything, oh, you know, fantastic. trying just yeah. Because we, we must have just missed each other in terms of working for Sky Sports News. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah um, because um, <laughs> the harsh words. I don't know how to put it. Uh, you got paid more doing commentary than you did working for Sky Sports News. No, that's uh, fine. And, yeah. So it was more, and it was also more more glamorous. And also, because I'm not on, yeah, you know, I've never wanted to be on screen. Um, mm. I'll, I'll leave that to the handsome people, Ed. So <laughs> we'll look for uh, some. Oh. <laughs> They're very short, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I wanted to do the commentary. I always loved the idea of doing commentary. So that's where I got the break into doing commentary for Sky. Uh, mm. And then I did the Spanish. So you know, people remember it used to be we used to have the Spanish football on. Sky and used yep. to be loads of Spanish football on Sky, and so it was, a, you know, it was a great. If I'm honest, it was a great disappointment to me when that went because obviously I was that was the bulk of my commentary. Most of my work then disappeared overnight. I was yes. already working with the video team doing these Premier League um, roundups and stuff, so I didn't drop from well paid to nothing. But it was a, you know, it was a setback, and and I, I I enjoyed it. I loved it, and we got a really good little community didn't get mm. anywhere near Premier League figures of course it didn't because it's a foreign league yes um, but I, I commentated through the Messi Ronaldo era it was Amazing. a great era for Spanish football we had a really good team when we did Revista um, and so yeah I, you know I, it was it, it was a shame that we well, lost that but uh, yeah. yeah we've just got back La Liga highlights on Sky Sports News it was a real boon particularly I work every Sunday pretty much and on a Sunday that's that's fantastic to have that compliment to to our output but you're right that that was a really sad time when, when Sky Sports lost those rights it was, it was interesting because I had Jimmy Gemmell James Gemmell former rugby presenter at Sky on last week and he was talking about the process that happened with Sky losing rugby rights and, and, and in, in a sense the exciting world of everyone and streaming companies being able to publish content and, and buy rights and things like that and it and it, it struck me as yeah that's is an interesting thing but the, the the big thing you have to bear in mind and simon jordan was talking on Talksport recently about how six nations fans would have to watch rugby on amazon if they get it for example and pay a, a pay-per-view thing but the, the question is john always isn't it with these things you have to be careful if you're not the premier league that you take it somewhere that people either don't have the energy or the finance to follow you that's the complexity of the situation because it's really exciting it's great for people commentators coming through that perhaps there's way more opportunity than was when we came through 20 years ago but actually it's there's lots of factors in play i think for the sports themselves not to be too remote on a streaming service somewhere yeah well it's it's long term versus short term isn't it it's it's grabbing the money in the short term versus your long term health so what happened with la liga 
I don't know if people know, yeah. but uh, Andrea Radrizzani's company, Eleven Sports, bought the rights. They outbid Sky. Sky had been through that before where they'd left it, to, you know, this horse trading at the last minute. Oh, yeah. we're not going to pay this. La Liga, oh, well, you will pay this. And in the end, they'd always sorted it out. Uh, but this time, uh, they didn't blow them out of the water, to be honest with you. You, you know, mm. you're talking small numbers in terms of what they give to the Premier League and all of that. But basically, 11 Sports came, took it over. But they they literally didn't have a broadcast division at the at the time. You know they wow. were just a right streaming company. They had broadcast channels in I think it was in Poland and Portugal or something, but not in the UK. Uh, and they had no network carriers, <laughs> so it was so you had to literally watch it online. <laughs> so I did some of it. Um, you know, and it, and it, you know, and it was great. I was I was grateful to be doing it for a, a few months, mm. but. Um, it was it was doomed to failure. So La Liga didn't even get their money in the end because um, Radrizzani pulled the plug on it. And so it was on nowhere for a because, while. Because subscribers didn't find it, didn't pay for it. It was just a... Yeah, yeah. yeah. because, you know, it turned out that there is, a, there is a limit in that the vast majority of the people... So the people who listen to my podcast, the people who get in touch with me on Twitter and all of that, they are the hardcore. They've all now bought La Liga TV that you can buy mm. directly. Um, but... What you're talking there, you're talking a few thousand people in reality who are that much into their Spanish football. Um, the vast majority uh, would sit down. And what you had in those days, you had a great thing where you'd watch, the, say, the six o'clock Premier League game, um, and then it would yeah. roll on into, or the four o'clock was the big game, wasn't it, in the Premier yes. League? And it would roll yeah. on into an evening of Spanish football. So then you might get a Valencia game at six and a Barcelona game at eight. Yeah. And I'd often be doing the, the Valencia game at six and it would be, you know, Kevin Keatings or Rob Palmer doing the Barcelona at eight or something. But people would sit, you know, and, and they would watch it on a casual basis. They'd be thinking, oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, go on in Barcelona play. <laughs> um, and to the extent where I, a football coach that I know, didn't realise I wasn't, that Sky hadn't got it until the Classico came round. He said, where's the Classico? I couldn't find it. And wow. I said, mate, mate yeah. they lost yeah. the rights to it, you know, yeah. months, months ago. Yeah. Um, so they they basically for the for the La Liga basically for the sake of a couple of million quid, mm. um, which might be a lot to ordinary people, but it's not to TV companies or not, uh, and not to La Liga. Teams. You wouldn't have yeah, thought, no. no. Yeah. Um, for the sake of that, they basically gave up almost all of their British audience, and it's and it's a real lesson, isn't it? I mean, the Sky and football has been big enough, but football, the Premier League have been wise. They've never taken it off away from match of the day, have they? All that no. time, they've made sure that you can still watch some football. Because I like cricket, so I grew up watching cricket, playing cricket. Um, my, my son was a really good cricketer. He yeah. gave it up because none of his, none of his mates played. They don't, they, you know, so unless you've got, it's money and it's easy to find as well isn't it that's the key i think it's just being able yeah, to stumble yeah, across it yeah. because we know we've got all these platforms but you don't want to sit there and search the internet yeah. and try and navigate for you know to try and find something all, all the time no. especially if you've got other people will, will just watching. people will wander away because you know there is so much you know video games um social media there are so many options so many things that can occupy your time very easily sports got to be very very careful um and and football has become this dominant dominant thing hasn't it and i know you've spoken to other guests you know from rugby fans boxing fans and everything else yeah. football is is it's it's overarching thing that is dominating everything else but even within that football's got to be careful or bits of football got to be careful not not just not to be too greedy not to not to move too far away from where people are at the moment 
Yeah, it's interesting that catal- that relationship between being on TV and inspiring people to play. My sort of journey was probably just I was obsessed with kicking a ball, and I saw a toddler in the play park yesterday in my local park, and he was probably eighteen months, two years, and he loved kicking a ball. That reminded me of how I felt, and I don't think everyone feels that. And that was my journey into into watching football. But we were talking about the late great, I think people would say, in St John, and the news has come out. And I'm going to put this podcast out next week, so it will be last week for people listening. Um, has passed away, former Liverpool striker, of course, and uh, for other clubs. And for me as a child, famous for Saints and Greavesy on TV, but it will lead us onto our book where I'll, I'll get with this segue in, in just a second, because it was at that time, Saints and Greavesy on ITV was a fantastic programme, but it was one of the few football programmes on TV when there was four channels. I believe at, at that time, I was probably six or seven watching it. I remember as I moved back from the West Indies to the UK and, and wanted to sort of, I guess, augment my love for playing for, with the the professional game and watching and learning about football and alongside that I started to get these VHS tapes world's greatest players the, the history of <laughs> you know the top 10 it was t- I think we had volume one and volume two and it'd be these fantastic often grainy pictures of people like Sir Stanley Matthews of course Diego Maradona who was still playing but it was his 80s heyday and Pele and Johan Cruyff and, and that's kind of the theme of of your book going back beyond that back to the 19th century as well isn't it the 50 and it's interesting because you said the 50 most influential players what was the the sort of kernel of idea for for the concept of of the book so it's inspired by neil mcgregor so the history of the world through 50 objects um which was neil mcgregor was the director of the british museum i don't think he still is and he wrote this huge but it's enormous thing if, if you can't read it it's a good doorstep um because and basically just told the story rather than telling the story in a straight fashion through objects. Now, that didn't work, I didn't think, in sport. It inspired a whole genre of, of other things. It was such a good book. But sport is about football. It was, sorry, football is about people. Yeah. First and foremost. So I think that was the obvious way to tell it. But no one had actually told the story uh, just through the story. So it's, it's 50 mini biographies, essentially. And the reason I went for influential is that they, I'm not. It's not. A, they're not the best fifty players because yeah. that's an eternal debate that you'll never solve. <laughs> uh, and then I'd have people shouting at me for putting Megan Rapino in because you know she's not as good as Leon. Like, yeah, okay, I know she's not as good as Leon. Not Lee as good as Mia Hamm. Yeah, 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 precisely. Um, so they basically are fifty people who let me tell the story. So I start with Charles Oldcock who was the man for all seasons. Mm. Uh, he was a crucial. He was a football player. Um, he, he was originally from Sunderland. He, he went down, but he was a gentleman. He went to Harrow School. So he was part of the whole formation of football, the fascinating formation in Victorian in, in Victorian England where the, the, the football world comes together. They argue about the rules for, for years. It splits with rugby. It splits... Uh, rugby then splits away professional and amateur football manages to stay together. So all of those mm. stories are told initially by Charles Oldcock. And then I wanted to tell a story because it changes then, and it's then the story of, of the working class through then. So yeah. I then went to Jack Ross, who was a working class Scotsman, because the Scots then had a huge influence on the early days of football. Because um, obviously it was a very northern game in the early days, because that's how the split went. The south stayed amateur, 
the North went professional, yeah. and eventually the professionals won out with the aid of this, this generation of Scots uh, who came down. But then what I wanted to do is that weaving around the world. So then I went with Ho uh, Hockey Brown, uh, which is just got, you know, the, the tremendous name of anything Argent else. Argentine, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, but they're from Scottish descent. So mm. there's this uh, this whole clan of Browns. It was basically a ship went from Scotland a couple of generations before that. And so there was a, a Scottish Argentine community. Mm. Um, and the Browns came out of that. And that just allowed me to tell the story of how the Brits then gave football to the world so they're all mini stories so again they're they're, they're only you know a couple of thousand words uh, each each so the chapters what five six seven pages long per per mini story so it's mm. hopefully hopefully it's, it's an easy read in that each little story each each person's biography tells their story sometimes tragic sometimes you know uh, emp empowering um but they also allow me to tell an aspect of the story of, of football so that, that's basically the premise yeah the context of the, the evolution it's interesting actually with Charles. Alcott reading that story because I wasn't actually familiar with him but he was you mentioned cricket this classic mm. sort of symbiosis with a gentleman who played football in the, the winter and cricket in the summer and I suppose that almost continued to Sir Ian Botham who was a decent footballer in in some senses but probably died out in the 70s and 80s those people who played both to a, a professional level but he was the sort of the, the sort of ringleader the, the the authority in 1863 when the, the rules were codified because we had Jimmy Gemmell on last week which is interesting his cultural association as a Kiwi with rugby union and, and that break and where these they all came from a, a similar history didn't they both mob football before that but then the crystallization in different schools around around England and Wales at the time yeah so essentially mob football was so that's that's essentially what football was so in, in those if you're trade tra if you're going the history of rugby and of football or people used to say soccer without embarrassment so <laughs> from, associate, from association football because people say that's just because <laughs> yeah. americans will be listening to this podcast yeah. and, and they think soccer and there's always this sort of like oh americans call it soccer or australians call it soccer but we used to call it soccer didn't we it was commonplace yeah, yeah. still do even, on sky of course but <laughs> yeah but even to the point where you know post i've got a book now now, uh, a 1952 coaching guide by Walter Widderbottom uh, refers to it as soccer throughout mm. because it's it's soccer as opposed to rugby, not soccer as opposed to American football. Anyway, so so you had so you had this rough game. This but where, where, where did it come from, um, John? Because it's from association, isn't it? Isn't it from the word association? Yeah, yeah. So that was the difference, basically. So you you, you basically you had the rough game where they. they forever banning it because people got killed inside when they invented glass the authorities really clamped down on on this game because windows got broken people had just paid for these new windows that cost a fortune um, yeah. and so the, the the mob game um was clamped down on and so then in a sense it disappeared off into schools and every school had its own version and then you had community versions where one village would try and kick a ball to another village and that kind of thing and it would often on, on bank holiday shrove tuesday and that was a classic football day um and so then what you had through the victorian times you had people slightly before charles Orcock trying to get people together can we what can we come together and actually agree some rules so we can play people from different areas mm. and then so that then turned into a massive argument that ended up with a split so some people wanted hacking uh, hacking is literally just kicking people in the shins um, <laughs> which is even for rugby now you think well you're just allowed yeah. to kick each other yeah. but yes they were and so but you read the rules the the 1860s rules and it is it's more like if you imagine i think you imagine gaelic football or aussie rules football it is a real hybrid game so they're kicking mm. it they are kicking it forward um and but at the same time so no one's getting it down there's an offside law where you're not allowed in front of the ball at all and then eventually 
they just split off and they 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 decide listen we one half of it wanted this physical rough game where you're allowed to virtually punch people and and have a fight and handle the ball yeah 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 and and crucially handle the ball yeah and the other side wanted to get it down and start kicking it around now it's still rough it's still kids in the playground kind of stuff because there's still a mob chasing a ball around yeah Um, but they but they start to codify it and Alcock is crucial because he is a great diplomat and a pacifier and so he is able to steer football through a course that doesn't lead to the split that you had in rugby between league and union that um and they they quietly sidelined the the posh gentlemen's clubs so i've got it in there the the, the story vivian woodward is who's basically as in my mind a you know, I've chosen it for slight convenience reasons, but the last sort of gentleman, the last great gentleman footballer who was one of the best footballers of his day, but he was also an architect. He didn't get paid to play football, but that generation disappeared. And in the end, football, professional football took over the South as well. And so clubs like Southampton, which was a great amateur club, became yeah. a professional club. And the old fashioned names, the Wanderers, the Corinthians, the Royal Engineers disappeared and, and, and lost out eventually and and we, we got the the recognizable game that that you that we would still notice and the names that you now know Preston and Blackburn and Aston Villa yeah. and all of that came into uh, that that second era fascinating yeah it's a fascinating evolution the history of it and it seems a long time ago but in a sense not that long that 160 years and you think about the, the enormity of football as a world sport but as you point out interestingly in the opening chapters I noted as, as someone who's coached soccer in the USA in my youth and, and are cognizant that Australia hasn't embraced it or New Zealand as we as we explored with Jimmy Gemmell yesterday to the extent or last week sorry to the extent of the rest of the world you point out it wasn't necessarily a, a done deal that football would be the preeminent game do you, do you think there is something unique about football though, why it has been adopted is something about just the ease of, of playing not necessarily 11 aside organized football but for me a kickabout has always been slightly more enjoyable than than a kickabout in rugby. Is something about the sort of the versatility of football, making a goal famously with your your jumpers or t-shirts or whatever you have to hand. Yeah, so that's it, isn't it? I think that's why it is the world's game. It is the world's game, isn't it? With all due respect yeah. to the other sports, um, I suppose running and fighting, uh, are, are in a sense, raw, yeah. aren't they? Uh, but other than that, it, it's it's football because it is easy to play. It's impossible to master. So all all you need, literally, you don't need a ball. You You can literally get a load of rags and and tie them up into a tight bundle and tie it up. And that's what people did. That's, you know, the the stories of uh, English sailors kicking the ball around docks. There there weren't a football as, as we know it now. As long as it rolled properly, you could do it two targets and then the great thing about football of course any number of people so you and I could have a, a kick about with the game of football and have, have fun for 10 minutes yes. uh, or you can have uh, everyone in the village can play and you can have 30 <laughs> aside I mean you know, it's not ideal but it's true but that's why isn't it so you can start straight away you literally the one bit of equipment uh, which is the ball and then you can improvise a target a goal yeah so that's why it was this ubiquitous thing that the, the the English were able to, and the Brits. Let's let's give credit to the Scots as well. Uh, were able to to take around with them, and it was an amazing time. An amazing. The Victorian Brits were amazing for travelling for for bad and for good. You can obviously, if you want to get into yes. the you know yeah. the, the the real history of it, but they they were travelling around working, and generally, what I argue in the book as well is that where we where we took the game where we worked with the local population such as Argentina such as Brazil football was adopted by the masses where the Brits were there working with people the places that we ruled 
you mm. still had this great big class division where so the ruling classes preferred cricket and preferred rugby and didn't really share them yeah which is the, the, the english-speaking countries around the world tend to be yeah. the ones that have been slower to catch on haven't they yeah. the usa so you look at is that. Yeah. their own version yeah because uh, USA obviously was independent earlier, and yeah. then so uh, you know the the American football game, and then from you know it, when did they start basketball again? Just over a hundred years ago. So that's that was your your easy to play working class mass. Yeah. Uh, well, ba- basketball is probably the next closest thing. Maybe people argue yeah. things like tennis, but basketball possibly has, has got a good claim for being a world sport when you look at FIBA and and what they yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have this great big split where. And that is more or less is the explanation of why football is not football as we know it is not the the, the main game in Australia and New Zealand and and South Africa. It's because of the the nature of how how the Brits ran those countries. Yeah, it's fascinating looking through here and names I, I do recognise and had studied a little bits before and, and not. But as a Manchester United fan, Billy Meredith is always. Uh, kind of immortal name in our, in our history for for good and for bad. Play for Manchester City as well, but um, he, he illuminates something that actually came to mind in a boxing uh, autobiography or biography. I've been reading on Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion. And a lot of that is about the sort of fixing that would go on and corruption in boxing and the pressure to to fix things for gambling. And, and Billy Meredith was at the heart of that, and that perhaps gives an indication that, that that may have been part of the process, mightn't it? Sort of people taking bribes and so on at that at that time, 100 years ago or so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there definitely was. Yeah, because he, he admitted it, <laughs> having, yeah. having denied it for ages, caused a massive scandal. He was the best player of his age. He was literally a coal miner whilst also a footballer in his early think. days because um, he didn't, because the, the money in football uh, was was small and there was no security with it. So, he, he, you know, while he first played in the second division, the new second division, he carried on working as a Welsh miner, travelling to Nuneaton to play football. And then he went to Man City, and there was basically a um, the, the massive scandal um, of the day. They, they, they essentially ended up had admitting that he had um, been taking illegal payments. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was <laughs> they, when they got done for it, he was given a, a bit of a promise that he would be, that he would be looked after. But the FA um, put uh, an auditor uh, into the club, and they weren't able to slip him any money and so basically he, 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 he um, blew the whole gaff admitted what he'd been up to um, and then but he is also involved in the first attempts to get trade unions going as well because he was a class warrior as well uh, as I say a class warrior as well as a class footballer yeah so he <laughs> he is it part of a failed union um, because they bring because football battles against the, the authorities battle against the footballers with a minimum with a maximum wage and the maximum wage stayed until the 1960s which yeah. again I pick up later with Jimmy, Jimmy Hill. Hill yeah um, and so but in a sense it does its job the maximum wage you know there are there are two sides of it because you look at what we we've got now in this crazy situation the only real reason I think that we've got 92 professional well, 92 plus professional clubs because there are pro clubs in the National League as well mm. is because those clubs were allowed to develop deep roots in their communities because the crowds were big 
but the the profits weren't all wasted on player, weren't all given in player money. Well, the percentage of the turnover, isn't it? That's the key, which football yeah. pays exorbitant amounts of its turnover, the clubs, to to the players, which is, is kind of unsustainable, isn't it? Based on anything other than the, the love and emotion that seems to keep football, most football clubs alive. Yeah, so we lurch on. That's, and that's what the game is, isn't it? Below the very top level, the clubs, the, the, the whole game is just lurching on through this relatively unsustainable um, because someone uh, will always pay wages. more, they'll always gamble. They'll always pay you more. That's the problem with it, isn't it? It's not. A, it's not a sort of objective business because it can only be one or two clubs successful. So there'll always be that temptation to just pay above the going rate. Yeah, but that's where FFP comes in. Financial fair play comes in. It's much criticised because people don't really understand it. But I think as a principle, it works. And I actually think that it, in a way, it saved the game at the moment because of you know we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic with mm. with empty stadium around the place and still having to pay players wages. So it saved clubs in that respect. But it's also, I think, part of the reason that we had such a poor transfer window. I know Brexit had just happened, and so there were new rules that were confusing yeah. people as well. But um, FFP means that, for example, it's very hard to see who can sign Messi on his current mm. wages because literally, yeah. literally, they're so high that you can't. So you can't even speculate. You can't even say, "Oh, we'll get Messi, and he'll bring us so much money in everything else that he brings that he it's also worth turns, it." He also turns thirty-four, doesn't he, this summer as well? So you're not. He does. Yeah, 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 much, yeah, yeah. Much investment, yeah. but he's but, goes from strength to strength, though, isn't he, as well? Uh, yes, but there is a re- you know, but you know, we're all human, aren't we? Yeah. So he, even <laughs> even the great man, you know, is you know, if he signs a three-year contract, um, he's he's going to be, you know, do do you does he want to go again in a new league? Does he you know yeah. the you know and do it all again at 34, 35? And you know, if he signs for the wrong club, that's on a down spiral. Mm. Um, you know, so, so a bit of realism is coming into football, but but on the downside of that realism, Stanley Matthews, yes, um, greatest footballer of his era, uh, according to you know most contemporary reports. Although it's hard to compare internationally in those days, but you know uh, he played for Stoke and Blackpool. <laughs> they, were the, they were the only two clubs he played <laughs> but to, for. But to professional first division football till his fifties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and he moved. The reason he moved to Blackpool is that he and his wife had just bought a guest house. <laughs> so oh, okay. you know. Lionel Messi's not moving on that basis, is he? You know, just, <laughs> but he, he was ahead of his time, Matthews, wasn't he? Didn't he used to fast and things like that as well? It was those elements that he used to to, to implement. Now, sports science yeah, is looking at now. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely. Yeah, he's he's as, as I. It's a slight stretch, but for me, he's almost the the Cristiano Ronaldo of his day because Cristiano Ronaldo to me is the future footballer. Mm. His incredible dedication, his incredible physique, the fact that. Before everybody else was using the, the cryogenic chamber idea, you know, you get back from a Champions League game at three in the morning or something, go straight to the ground and go in the in the in the cooling chamber so he could recover. Um, his, his dedication is amazing. And Stanley Matthews was the same. He was basically ahead of his time. In, yeah. in a day of, of fags and steaks, he was eating salad he was going running on the on the beach he was doing things to build up what we now call core strength and you look at him you look at the old pictures of it his, his change of direction is brilliant and, he, and his his thighs are immense and yeah. he's got a real if you remember Ronaldinho playing Ronaldinho's yes. strength and his big strong backside and that change of direction that it gave him Stanley Matthews was like that which is why he was considered I think to be so far ahead of his game he practiced and practiced and practiced so he was out there 
chipping balls onto a sixpence and all of that kind of stuff. But his dedication, his lifestyle, his fitness and his strength is the reason, as, as you say, still playing, still a pro footballer at 50 is just, just incredible. <laughs> it's fantastic and really, really inspiring for us all at this uh, mm. stage of, uh, of our lives. It's interesting flicking through there because Stanley Matthews, of course, was a, a winger. And we had this discussion before we started recording just quickly. And, and you mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo and that sort of never ending debate about who's better, him or Lionel Messi. And people will boil that down to numbers and physiques and, and different aspects of the game and abilities. But the intangible aspect of, of, of some of the players on your list and particularly the wingers, which unfortunately, for those of us who loved watching wingers growing up as kids, is, is one of the things that's not really common in the modern game. Maybe Callum Hudson-Odoi is trying to bring it back a little bit in the sort of modern Chelsea team, I'd, I'd say. Um, but you don't often see, and that intangible magic of watching players, looking at people like Garincha on your list, the famous Brazil star of the, the 1950s, that, that's something that you have to bear in mind, isn't it? Because as a kid watching Ryan Giggs roar down the wing, it may not be borne out in numbers that we look at now, was just one of the most exhilarating and intoxicating experiences. I suppose that's something that you had to, to bear in mind when you compiled this list. Yeah, we like magic, don't we? And that's that's one of the things. So a lot of the guys on this list are magical players because that's how the stories uh, grow up. What, what, what I would hate, Ed, is imagine someone writes this book in 100 years' time and it's all based on stats. Imagine, yes. you know, yeah. the, the, these are the 50 players with the best stats in football. Now, you can look at some of the stats. You know, Messi's goal-scoring stats, he can't argue with that, and Cristiano mm. Ronaldo and all of that. But some of them are just the magic of seeing someone do something uh, unexpected. Yeah, 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 precisely. But English people love Gascoigne. And, and we do ourselves down sometimes in this country, or we, we have this idea that the English like functional players but it's not true really is it because no. you think the most popular player of my lifetime has been Gaza yes because yeah. not because of you know, we, we, you know not everyone in this story by the way has um, a healthy lifestyle no and not because he won, not because of what he won either really was it it wasn't star no, studded no, you know, glory no. it was you know he's, he's partly as i say i'm i'm slightly cheating in that some people are there because they helped me tell a story so he's he's he spanned quite a long period of english football so he allows me to tell that story but he just had that magic and and there's a you know that's the reason people love george best now i only remember george best i'm afraid tail end george best where the drink had got the better of him you remember him playing do you uh, I, yeah, so I remember, uh, what the, one of the first things I remember is George Best signing for Fulham being a thing. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, my recollection of George Best is as a Fulham player. And then, uh, and I couldn't see the first, obviously. And then, obviously, then you learn the stories of what he was like at Manchester United and all of that. So, um, so and the famous goal he scored in the States was, do you remember that at the time? Was that? The one that we dribbles around everyone playing in California, I believe. Was it? Yeah, no, but no, I don't remember seeing any of. I don't. Yeah. If I remember rightly, we never saw any of that. We uh, couldn't, though, could we? <laughs> yeah, time, that that action. Strange. No, so I think that's only stuff that we've seen later. But that it was a fascinating spell in America because a fair, you know, a lot of the greats of that era went to play mm. uh, in in America. But people always they they love the the the, the firecracker, the the unpredictable uh, player, not necessarily. Um, the the ultra reliable, but uh, say a friend of mine read this story and he said it's it tells you so much about you, John, that you've gone for that. I, for example, <laughs> would regard Bobby Charlton as the greatest English footballer, not Gaza, because yes. he said well, that's because you value the reliable and the uh, and the output. Well, the, uh, winning where, the World Cup and most appearances yeah. and, and goals for a long time as well before Rooney yeah. surpassed him. Yeah. See, I, I think he's clearly the, the the greatest English footballer, but it's the whole Maradona. 
uh, Messi debate is another one as well. Uh, and he said, well, you you obviously prefer Messi because he's reliable, looked after himself. Again, you know, going back to the previous conversation, vegan in, in, the, in the football season, um, played, however, you know, hundreds and hundreds of games, whereas he prefers Maradona, even though, it's, he's no example. You wouldn't want your kids to grow up <laughs> living like Maradona, obviously. But cult, but he, cult figure, yeah. He he regarded him as a cult figure because of the 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 unknown factor. And there are loads of those. Garincha is another one that you wouldn't want your kids to grow. I mean, tragic story, fascinating story, amazing story. Very ill, very Ill as a child, wasn't he? Garincha is that? He, he was an alcoholic as a child. Oh, right. It's just extraordinary. He, he drank this. You know, his dad was a drinker. He was a drinker. Um, and he was disabled. He's, he's the only person in the book who, 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 who I think you could describe as disabled because he, he had a, a, a knee issue that caused his leg to, to move in, in the, the, the opposite direction that you'd expect mm. it to. But again, rather like Stanley Matthews, he had that brilliant um, core strength and he was this amazing player, but an absolute tragic story and a, and a, you know, a warning of, of the booze because mm. dominated his life. It was an chaos everywhere uh, he went he ran over his own father when he was drunk at one stage Whoa. and tragically he killed his own mother-in-law in oh another goodness. traffic uh, when he crashed he was in the car with him and he crashed the car um he died at the age of 49 broke despite having been bailed out a number of times along the way but people in brazil they still love garincha so in a sense he was a contemporary of pele and so you had pele who had this amazing output Mm. Uh, you know, all those goals. And people take the mick out of Pele's goals. It's an amazing record of Pele's goals. Okay, yes. you know, he still scored, because they claim to score a 1,000. People say, yeah, but, you know, 300 of those were in um, friendlies and, and tour matches. You think, right, he still scored 700 and <laughs> yeah, another 300 yeah. on tour matches. But he caught a high he, bar. Didn't he say George Best was the best player? Is that right? Was he... Did he... Um, he was, was quote about that, yeah. Yeah, now he said, he said Stanley Matthews was the man who taught us all how to play football. The one thing that you would, because pe people do down Pele now, mm. so I, I do give a list of quotes from people um, who, so Bobby Charlton, Cruyff, Beckenbauer, all said Pele was the greatest. Yeah. So th that, because we can't provide evidence, because we're looking at relatively grainy old footage from World Cups, because we, have, we're not, we haven't seen him play 700 well, games. That goal in the 58 World Cup was pretty yeah, spectacular, precisely. wasn't it? Precisely, yeah, yeah. And he was a kid then. He was a 17-year-old kid. Mm. Um, and so I, I, the thing that clinches it for Pele, for me, being the greatest of his generation, um, was the reaction of his peers and what his peers said about him. And they all said that he was magical. And you watch Pele, 66 apart, because he was injured through that. He was strong. He was so not just physical, but clever. Um, he, he wasn't uh, an out and out goal scorer, despite scoring all those goals. He was a wide ranging attacking midfield player. He had, he had everything, Pele. So that was, mm. it was, it was, it was brilliant, you know, because I've got a, a range of players. So I, I, I so much enjoyed reading through, you know, 50 different fascinating <laughs> stories. And, and the only pain through, through books rather than the internet. Is that the best way you, to research it you found? Uh, so particularly the old guys, yeah. And then later, as you get later, there's more stuff appears on, on YouTube. So yeah. it's fascinating to watch as well because, uh, for example, French Puskas, so the famous 53, Hungary yeah. 53. So England think they're the best in the world, despite lots of evidence <laughs> appearing that they're not, such as them getting knocked out of the, the World Cup in 1950 by, by the America. USA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they still think they're the best in the world. They still put that down to a quirk. Oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. They play against Hungary in 1953, they get hammered, 6-3. And then they play them again in Budapest the year after, they lose 7-1. And so then 
they, everyone, the whole of English football was there to watch that game at Wembley. And they have to accept that the time has come that England is not the best in the world. We have to accept that the rest of the world have taken football and improved it, particularly this Hungarian team. But you watch that. Go back and watch that game. And the, the thing that struck me about it, I'm thinking, right, what's weird? What's unusual about this Hungary team? And the answer is nothing. Because <laughs> we watch that now. They look like a modern football team. Yes, yeah. They are, they're getting the ball, they're dropping into space, Fluidity, they, they get yeah. the ball, they play a pass, they might dribble, they might beat a man, they move back into another space. England are the ones standing in position. Mm. England, you don't see Stanley Matthews for five minutes at a time because he's standing out on the wing. And yeah. so he's not even in camera shot. And, and so they are the ones who, who revolutionised the game. So watching the footage... Just so sort of opened my eyes. I think that's that's what it was. Mm. That you know, so a, a new nation comes along. Uh, Pushkas is in the book, by the way, because just it, his individual story was also interesting. And with De Stefano as well, wasn't he? Real Madrid, yeah. Yes, was, yes, yeah. he was. Yeah. So yeah, yeah so that was a, 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 a because De Stefano's individual story is also fascinating as well. And you know, it throws. 40, 50 years forwards to the to the Premier League, or even longer than yeah, 60 years forwards to the to the Premier League money era, Di Stefano. But so what happened with Hungary? It's basically the rest of the world watched Hungary and then took it. And so, you know, the, the best things are are then taken and assimilated into the rest. So like Cruyff's era of the Dutch footballers, everyone now plays like that. Everyone's oh wow, the players move all around the pitch. <laughs> That's how players play now. I know yeah. we still have positions, they still have positions, but you're right back, we'll we'll go and overlap. And if necessary, and you see it with particularly Pep Guardiola's team again, he's pushed it further with where your fullbacks will go. And so, yeah. you know, that's those great eras, and you and you watch them, and that allows you just to, you know to 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 understand the impact that uh, that they had. Whereas the the book learning stuff from earlier, you are you're reliant on old stories, but that's yeah. that's the truth. That's the truth of history. You know, yeah. you know, one of the things when you study history, you realise hey, there's an awful lot of guesswork in in, in ancient history <laughs> that's going on. You know, compared to now, I know there are downsides of this modern crazy electronic world where we monitor each other the whole time and we know everything mm. that goes on. Uh, but at least we know, you know, it, it's. We know, and the whole crisis about what is the truth that goes on now, that's just because we're realising that the truth is being manipulated. Whereas 100 years ago, 300 years ago... It's presented as fact. ...manipulating the truth, it, yeah. and, we, and we didn't know. Yeah, no. we, just had to, we just had to take it. Yeah, read a book and, you, and someone says someone was great and you assume they were. I think what came through, and you mentioned Gorincha mm. there, is, as well as the, the pathos, the complexity of, of maybe people would say genius, and, and Gazo comes into that. And we're looking at the, the modern era now, it's coming to bear it has been to bear in boxing but american football rugby union the toll of being a professional athlete in a contact sport and tom finney in here as well i know that um great striker was it the best scoring rate for england or something like that i believe from from recollection i read a good book on tom finney it was in his day. yeah yeah um and his there's a sadness to to his story as well and you wonder when you think about his demise post playing whether some of that may have been doing to, to brain trauma because he was a fine header of the ball and we're, we're looking at that now aren't we in the, the modern landscape of football and what the effect of, of regularly heading a football is yeah yeah you know what the, the the hardest thing about this book wasn't putting people in it was leaving people out and I I briefly considered and if, if I made it 51 I might put uh, Jeff Astle in mm. for, for his story the you know the, the amazing work his his daughter has done to highlight that that era of those guys and there's so much more work to be done um, and you, you hope that those days are gone because the football has changed. You know, in those days, the, the, the goalkeeper usually picked the ball up and he kicked it down the pitch. 
So you're traveling, what, 50, 60 yards, heavy ball, and then either the center back or the, the center forward would often head it. And so that was happening repeatedly, and they practiced that way as well. And so we, we have ignored it, and we don't quite understand it. And uh, it is, yeah, it's, it's a tragedy. But yeah, there's all sorts of um, prices to be paid. Now, and, and, but such a mix of the guys. I mean, Tom Finney, to be fair, lived, he lived a good old, you know, he, he lived mm. um, in uh, 91, I think he was, when he, uh, when he passed away. So, you know, some of them had, had happier retirements. And, and you know, as I say, uh, Garincha, George Best, um, taken from us too, too young. And, um, you know, going back to Jose Andrade, one of the first great Uruguayans, you know, the Uruguayans yeah. who won the first World Cup. Um, similar story of, you know, of, of not being looked after and of uh, a victim of alcoholism. Yeah, talking of victims, have you got a couple of minutes, John? Are you still okay for time? Before we, um, just a couple, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. A couple of players I wanted to, to mention and, and, and that thread of, of victim is, uh, maybe not victim, maybe it's, it's probably demeaning their sort of attitude but Lillian Parr on here we ran a story on her on Sky Sports News recently actually in the Dick Kerr ladies situation which I hadn't understood because we were obviously looking and I've coached in the states whereas women's football has very much been accepted for 20 years going back and almost seen as, as more popular than the men's game but in this country it's been a, a struggle in a sense in my lifetime to maybe popularize it make it um, a, a regular option for girls but Lillian Parr was playing 100 years ago and they were playing in front of huge crowds weren't they I hadn't realized that before the FA basically took away their freedom to do so which is incredible in retrospect that they were able and that was allowed to happen yeah fascinating story isn't it I'll read it to you the the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and it ought not to be encouraged so that was 1921 that was the FA and it effectively banned women's football with that and they did it I don't know why, through a sneaky backdoor route of banning uh, anyone who had a, a ground used for professional football could not let it be used for women's football. Wow. And yet, months earlier, there had been 53,000 uh, in uh, Goodison Park for the game, uh, and it was a Dick Kerr's lady. So Dick Kerr's was, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a factory. In the war, it turned into a munitions factory in the First World War, so they were producing guns for the, for the, you know, for the war in, in France and Belgium. Yeah, the men were away. They suspended football. Uh, big argument about that for a while, and then the women's football grows in the war. But the massive crowds are actually after the war, as the men's game is re-establishing itself. And some of the so Ditko's lady did uh, a lot of charity. I mean, he was the, the guy who ran it was he was ruthless because he nicked Lily Parr because they played against St Helens, and he thought, wow, she's good. Well, we'll have her, <laughs> and they offer her a job in the factory. So she's a semi-professional footballer. Wow. Because she was nominally working in the factory. I don't know how much she worked in the factory. Unfortunately, with the Lipa, she didn't write anything or, or there were no really extensive interviews with her. It's such a shame because it would be yeah. fascinating to hear her voice. But of, of, when I tried to find out more about her, I could find people talking about her, but I could never, found, never found her voice. It'd be brilliant if someone could one day and find, I'm not, I don't mean literally, you know, I just mean her quotes from her, her telling a story, her having done a long interview, but I couldn't find any real examples and she, she was an openly gay player actually yes yeah, she was yeah so she lived she lived with with her her, her, her partner uh, obviously there was you know there was no formal recognition of it but so you know you know how long it is before just in fashion figures in this story from the late 70s and early 80s and then again that's it really almost it for for gay male footballers whereas lily park was openly gay and so as you say it's a good question she's not a victim in fact i think that's how i finished the the chapter you know 
it's, it, you can't call Lily Parr a victim because she played in front of tens of thousands of people. She earned a living. She went on playing football for years and years. The victims of that story are is the, the 50 odd years of women who weren't allowed to play football. They yeah. were forced, if they wanted to play football, you had to do it in the park. But, you know, with that kind of restriction on you, there were just generations of women mm. who didn't get to play the greatest game in the world. Yeah. And, and it's an absolute tragedy and, and something to be ashamed of. It's not just British because it, it, you know, it's not like there was a thriving scene around the world. It was only the Brits who were missing out on it because you know, but we were influential in, in having having the, the women's game effectively banned. And it's, and it's such a tragedy. So, and, it's just, mm. and it's just this weird um, story of Lily Parr and her contemporaries. She's just the best of, 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 you know, of a good bunch of players who had all that success. And then literally, we, we don't know where it would have gone. And you can speculate where it would have gone, but we simply don't know because they turned the tap off and you know, they denied half a century more, really, because even when they turned it back on, even when they lifted the ban, um, they didn't do anything active. So you've got no. a choice. You can, you can, you know, you can say let's not be sexist. You can say let's not be racist. Mm. But unless you actively put put the means of growing those football teams back in place, what happens is that you, you then had a, a 20, 30 years of women's football growing from from nothing again. Mm. And so Hope Powell is in the story, and she's basically having to get your know, two buses to go. And is, and is basically playing park football at the start of her career. And then it has to build back up and build back up and build back up. And it's only really in the last few years in the Megan Rapinoe era where women have had encouragement and, yeah. and authorities have actually put and it, money and facilities at it. And then, funnily enough, the game grows. And you've got the signature moment with Brandy Chastain. I was in the US actually on a family holiday. <laughs> Unfortunately, a glandular fever during it. So I was sort of in bed watching a lot of the Women's World Cup during that time. But the famous, it was at the Rose Bowl, wasn't it? Over 100,000 people, was it, watching yes. that? And, yeah. and the USA win the World Cup and she scores the, the winning penalty. The team, I suppose, that, that featured Mia Hamm. And actually, I, I spent a couple of years in the States and, and Mia Hamm was probably one of the top most 10 famous sports people in the States, probably five or six years after that. Interesting, her sort of resonance. And, and that was, a, that was a, such a huge moment, it seemed, in the United States, but worldwide for, for women's football. Yeah, it was an interesting one, wasn't it? Because it, was it was a hard choice. I didn't know, what, you know where to go. There's a few times in this I had a dilemma of which way to go with which player to tell the story. But it was such an iconic image, and I I didn't get it though. I was so I was in my twenties then, and I was mm. and it was all over the news that she'd done this. She'd taken a top off, and uh, she sort of twizzled it around her head, and then she <laughs> sank down to her knees. And I was thinking, why? Are they, I, I was defensive. I was thinking, why? Why are they criticising her? Uh, for that because female athletes wear less than that anyway yeah, yeah. Um, but then I spoke to Jackie Oatley about it and she said no 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 it was it was empowering and the empowering thing about it was that she celebrated uh, just like she'd won a football match or she, like she won the world cup it wasn't just any old football match natural yeah yeah that women would feel that that level of intensity at victory the same as a as as Tardelli, when he, mm. you know, when when Italy won the World Cup uh, in '82, that extreme bursting of emotion. So you're not playing women's football as some kind of exercise to get, you know, yeah. you know, to get women yeah. playing football. You're playing it because you want to play it, and you're as desperate to win you're the game the as moment. a bloke. Yeah. As blokes yeah. are desperate to win the game, yeah. And so it 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 is there for itself, it, and, and it's on its own merits. And women are enjoying and competing for, on their own merits at, at football, and it's worked. Because now, you know, girls are, well, we're not right now, but, you know, when we, when we restart again, there will be girls' teams all over the place. And even in my, you know, because I've done a bit of coaching 
as well. Initially, that you, you, you had to travel quite a long way to get a girls game of football, even 10 years ago, whereas now there are more girls te- teams around. And so the whole scene has, has thrived as the, as the FA have basically put some shoulder into it, and put some money into it. Yeah, I mean, it is fantastic, that opportunity there. And my daughter, unfortunately, she's six, but I know it's a rebellion against me, but she's um, less inclined to play. But my niece is very keen. She's nine. <laughs> and it's interesting. I think my daughter's more inclined to maybe do street dancing. I think she quite likes that. But it's, um, you know, it's good to have the opportunity to do it. And my wife and I have talked about that, the lack of a hobby for a teenage girl that she found with her group of friends was a, a challenge because suddenly you start maybe wearing makeup and, and hanging out with older boys, whereas the boys are still collecting, of your own age, collecting Panini stickers we were and, and sort of, you know, we went to the same school, my wife and I, so it's a very different experience. So it's quite interesting. Um, hmm. Yeah, what a hobby can give you, what sport, what a passion we can give you as a social tool, but also in those troubled teenage years, potentially a bit of direction and discipline and, and things like that. It's um, it's a sad note looking at Justin Fashion on that list, though, isn't it? Because have, is that the one area we're still to traverse is where a gay man can can happily, comfortably be himself and play elite football? Uh, I think you could. Now, I, this, is, this is a complex one. I, I'm not gay, so I, I, I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and also my age, you know, you know, I'm in my late 40s. Um, so I, I hope it is different. I suspect it's not. It's, di- it's difficult to present Justin Fashionu's story as anything but a tragedy. He killed himself at the age of 37. It's, it's, you know, for all that his early achievements as a footballer, um, it's very hard to be anything other than, than negative about it. Now, there are more positive stories. Thomas Hitzelsberger played a football career and then came out as gay and still works for Stuttgart. He's still part of the management structure at yeah. Stuttgart. Uh, Robbie Rogers. Uh, yes. played his, his football career at a brief hiatus, said that he was gay, decided to retire. Everyone said, change your mind, mate. He came back and he enjoyed the last part of his football career. Um, do, you think so, there's a fear, do you think there's a fear that maybe it would be more back, sort of negatively received than it actually would? Is that part of the, the problem? Yes, I do. Uh, yeah, I definitely do. Uh, I, you know, I, was, I was talking to a friend of mine who works in the entertainment business and and I was, I would say, listen, I think now you would get a much better reaction. You would obviously get idiots on social media. Yeah, you, you really would. But um, so and that would be a bad thing and would have to deal with that. But I don't think that's a reason not to. I, but my fear is that the whole culture which is why I think things like rainbow laces are important. You need the whole culture to be welcoming because you go into certainly when I was a kid playing, if you were gay, in that atmosphere, why would you go through it? Why would you not self-select yourself out mm. of that? So what I, I, I don't think, because everyone's looking as if there is this holy grail of finding a gay Premier League footballer and, and suddenly, hey, everyone's happy. And, and, but for me, the work has to be done, yeah. changing the whole culture. So if you are a gay kid, you can go and play football and not feel that it is some kind of frightening yeah. environment because otherwise you just self-select yourself away. And it's such a hard thing to become a professional footballer of the thousands and thousands and thousands of us who started millions of, you know, <laughs> so kids we all wanted England to be, yeah. We're all failed footballers. footballers. Yeah. 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 So how many, you know, a few thousand get to the top. So it's so hard. And if there's at any point in that you start to feel unwelcomed, then mm. You know, why would you not self-select yourself away yeah. from, it, from the game? So that's my fear that that's happened. But I, as I say, I don't know because I, it's, that's not my experience. 
Yeah, you think in a, in a halcyon way that we should just be individuals who are what we are, and it's almost irrelevant what our sexuality or, or skin colour is. But I think what's been apparent with conversations over the past year is actually having a level of empathy for people who aren't, you know, say, white and straight in, the, in this culture, because you can sort of have that approach where those things don't exist, but you have to have empathy for people where it's still an issue for them and you have to be cognizant of making them feel extra welcome in a sense, I think, and, and stressing that wearing the rainbow laces and, and just making it um, very visible, that acceptance. That's the key, I believe. Yeah, that because that's the way it will change, isn't it? You have to say you are welcome. And then you have to also say to people who might deliberately bar the way, um, that's not acceptable. And then for, I think a far greater number of people probably bar the way without any real thought as to what they're doing, just because mm. it's always been, just because it's careless and thoughtless. So the odd comment about, you know, the odd homophobic comment that really doesn't mean anything. And if you said, actually, you realise that guy is gay. Oh, really sorry. Oh, I didn't mean it. Not you, mate. And all mm. of that kind of stuff. That's why, you, that's why you need the campaigns, isn't it? That's why we have rainbow laces. Just say, mate, just stop and think and listen. And we could be you know, missing and, great, and, great players, couldn't we, as well as a selfish yeah, side of it. That's precisely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Leroy Rosinia told a really powerful anecdote recently on Sky Sports News where he talked about not regretting himself, not talking up when Justin Fashioner came into a, a dressing room and got into a bath and two lads left immediately. He said he weren't necessarily quote-unquote bad people, but he said he should have said to them, look, he doesn't fancy you. What are you talking about? You know, you're ridiculous. Yeah. You're ugly. And he said he should have, he regrets not speaking up and sometimes it's speaking up in those key moments and having that that fortitude to do so, which can be difficult when you feel social pressure. But actually, I believe, like you say, that I think there is more of a collective will to give everyone the freedom to, to be themselves and, and to just do whatever they'd like to do in their lives and not feel repressed. So that's that's really important. I was just looking at the, the list, actually, and we couldn't go through all 50 here because it would take so long. Eric Cantona's there, which is great for me as a, a <laughs> catalyst for Manchester United and I suppose the Premier League era. But Mesut Ozil at number 47, that's an intriguing one because I presume will uh, divide opinion as, as Herzl's tended to do through through certainly the latter half of his career. Yeah, well, he's there for a couple of reasons. One is that I wanted to partly uh, just give, give a, a nod to, to to the rise of uh, Muslim footballers, which is, yeah. you, you know, um, uh, a, a new thing, not particularly Brits, to be honest with you. You know, it's not something that, because the, the whole South Asian community um, watch football, but there's no great record of, of producing South Asian no, no. Brits footballers, so there's a little bit of that, but I couldn't find, you know, there there, there is no well Hamza Chowdhury, but you know, there wasn't enough there to to put him in that bracket. But so Mesut Ozil, but his real purpose, he is the modern Premier League um, mm. for, for for good and for ill. Social so, media is in there as well, yeah. Yeah, so there's a bit of that, but also, so he was. Uh, we forget this because uh, I, I also tell the story of every World Cup. He was a he was a World Cup winner, Mesut yeah. Ozil, wasn't he? You know that Germany team that won the 2014 uh, World Cup. He was a he had the assists. He was top of the assist chart in Spain with yeah. Real Madrid and in England with Arsenal. So he's a, a player of tremendous ability, vision, and potential, mm -hmm. and vision. Uh, however, you know you can't escape the fact what his career became was this, this sort of bloated and ruined by money. Mm. And so when you when you talk about the Premier League era for all of its brilliance, you can't ignore the fact that it has thrown away and chucked around money to an extraordinary extent. And players that have come and gone, and you think, wow, I'd forgotten he existed, <laughs> you, know, yes. you know, and he was paid a fortune. Rubinia, uh, I was looking at the other day in, in Manchester City, yeah, and you know, yeah. his career petered out. Every, everyone who's, every football fan listening to this would be able to 
You know, can you think of a footballer who didn't fulfill their potential, who was paid a fortune? Can you think of some kid who came from a foreign country, was was hailed as the next big thing, they're paid a fortune and he failed? Yes, you can, because there are hundreds of them. You know, we could all think of them. But Mesut Ozil, in, in a sense, was was the king of of ruined mm. by uh, but, money. But, and and a sort of part of a social activism in football as well, which we're seeing mm. in, in America with LeBron James speaking on Black Lives Matter and yes. different sports people, Marcus Rashford, because he spoke out against the treatment of Muslims in China, didn't he? Which I think was quite a brave thing to do, particularly with the, the sway China appears to have over, over professional sport. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and there were repercussions, weren't there, for, for mm. that? Now, obviously... I'm not saying that his Arsenal career failed because of of that, but you know the the Chinese didn't like it when when Ozil spoke out for the for the Uyghurs, um, and it's it's the kind of thing that it's at the fringe of the news, isn't it? We sort of mm. mention it, but when we all sort of a bit scared of offending China, you know, because of those big yeah. broadcast deals, so you've got to be brave about it and. You could say, well, it's, it's easy for him to be brave. He's got 300 grand a week tucked away in, in, in a bank account. But he was brave to speak up, you know, and, and, he, and he spoke out on principle. So he's a complex character, yeah. as, as as most people are. You, you, you know, there's, it's not just my 50 favourite people in the in this book um, or 50 people who you think must, who, who are, you, you, you must laud as, as fine examples, you know, because Ozil... He took a lot of money, didn't play particularly well in the second half of his mm. Arsenal career. No getting away from that. But he's a fascinating character. He was brave to speak out about the, the Uyghurs in China. And in the early part of his career, he, he, was, a, he was a brilliant footballer. David Beckham's in there nestled next to, in between the Brazilian Ronaldo yeah. and, and Cristiano Ronaldo. And it's interesting with David Beckham because a lot of people argue, oh, he was just a celebrity, he wasn't a great footballer. But sometimes I wonder if the celebrity and the fame undermined his ability. When you watch the reels, when you watch the stories of, of redemption and resilience that he had in his career... He was a he all right was had a limited specialism, but the specialism was so special at its best, wasn't it? Yeah, and and, and he worked hard because he was super fit. So as you know, he also contributed a lot. I I was in Old Trafford for the game against Greece, probably oh, wow. his best game, where he went he went a bit crazy actually. <laughs> you know, I think pros and you know purists of tacticals are saying what what was he running around all over the place for? Yeah. I like David Beckham. Uh, I've got a lot of time for him. He, he partly tells the story, as does George Best, of how celebrity came, how football and celebrity ended up being the same thing. It was Best started that, and, and then Beckham was looked after much better by Manchester mm. United, by the game. There was the... the the, the, the infrastructure was in place for a young man to go through what he went through without having all the problems that George Best had. Uh, but Beckham, of course, was a great player. He played for Manchester United, Real Madrid signed him. And it wasn't just to sell shirts. It wasn't just because he's a good looking lad selling shirts. No. You know, he then had the second part of his career in MLS. He did really well. I know he alienated people initially, didn't he, when he went there yeah. and they went thought he wasn't and, committed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but then he but he also played Milan wanted him, PSG wanted him. He was a fine footballer. I admit he is not the level of the the, you know, you, you, the people around him. The mm. Brazilian Ronaldo, what, a, what an extraordinary <laughs> talent he was um, in the early part but of his career. consistent, so, 38, wasn't he, when he was playing for PSG in the Champions League, Beckham? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so he, you know, he, he's, he's a good example of a, of a guy who got the very, very last drop out of his football career. Because, again, you look at Best and Garincha and the others that I've mentioned and Gaza. And you think, wow, that's a lot of talent. And we're all frustrated with Gaza, aren't we? That, you know, there's oh, so much talent and you didn't, and you left it and you didn't get the most of it. You can't say that of David Beckham. He, he squeezed every drop out, out of his football career. So, you, you know, he's admirable in that respect. 
It certainly is. And you, you end on Raheem Sterling is, is, is what both a player and again, a, a spokesperson for his generation, which he's, he's utilised, I suppose, the, the evolution of football alongside the media and, and social media in, in penning articles and, and being very erudite about social issues. Yep, yep, and he obviously allows me to tell the the, the up to date story of the England football team, the the endless mm. frustration of being an England fan. <laughs> that might one day it might end, but I, I sort of suspect not. And also of you know this this sort of Man City Liverpool rivalry, having played for both of those teams, but also his you know his his, his fights against racism. Viv Anderson is in there. In obviously first England player, part of uh, Cluffy's great Nottingham Forest team. But Viv Anderson was told by, by Brian Clough, people were throwing fruit onto the pitch, abusive fans. And, and Brian Clough said, yeah, go and get me a couple of oranges and an apple or something. Words effectively saying, suck it up if you want to be a professional footballer and deal with it. Raheem Sterling's generation of black footballers uh, are saying, you know what, it's, we're not sucking it up. And, not you know, we're not it, just yeah. being brave about it. Um, we, we actually want to be treated with respect. Why, why should we? Why should we suck it up? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and then using his, you know, that, that very clever social media post, the, the contradiction between uh, Tosin and uh, Phil Foden of how um, the buy their mama house was reported. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you, know, yeah. su- you know, just subtle racism. Well, that, well, it is. Let's call it what it is. But also, subtle racism. Yeah, yeah it's it, something yeah. that doesn't spring to mind necessarily, does it? Which people, I think, yeah. it, it kind of made you think, actually, which was, was yeah. important, that, that, that what racism is is not necessarily what racism was 100 years ago. It's, it's something more nuanced and can be. Yeah. Or even when I was a kid, you know, when I was a kid, people went along and they booed the black players mm. uh, en masse. It is different and you've got to know where it's different. So obviously the, the, the outright abuse is generally on social media and then you've got to look and say, right, so where, where are the blockages? Why, why yeah. are there so few black football managers? You know, what, are we, what is it in the society, in the game, that is stopping this from, from happening? And, and be, be an active it's a tough job being a football manager, isn't it? I always wonder, like, yeah. I understand why we want to have a more representative um, sort of uh, look at society demographically in terms of who, who's there, but it's, it's just not a job I would appeal to me. I don't know. The, the pressures and the judgment of it is it's such a fickle world, football management, isn't it? So hard to assess who's good and who's bad in, in lots of ways because it gets such short windows of opportunity. Yeah, and there aren't many of them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, as, as, a, as a data, the more, the more important thing is are, are we making sure that, you know, every sector of society so, so you know are, are, are black boys doing well enough at school are, are white boys doing well enough at school are girls here that, yeah. that that matters more than who's a football manager so in a sense it is just a representative of wider society um and so you know you probably shouldn't get hung up on whether there are 17 or six or whatever but six out of 92 given the how many black footballers there have been in the last couple of decades yeah it's an obvious you think wow there's something wrong there yeah that's an obvious problem yeah you make an important point about british south asians as well being not represented even in the playing perspective let alone the, yeah. the management so that's which a- is why i always think bame is i think we'll stop using the expression bame in in future no. i think it's clumsy if, if i'm honest i i mean again the same too, caveat too vague isn't it it's very vague it's very general yeah. vague. the same caveat is that we you know we're two white blokes discussing it so we, we you know I'm, I'm sure that there's you know some yeah. people will have more insight into that but certainly when we're talking about football there are, are different issues aren't they in mm. the um, why are there no black managers? There are no 
South Asian managers, you sort of think, well, yeah, because there haven't been any players. So, mm. so where would they come from? So it's a, it's a different issue, yeah. isn't it? And, 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 and the process it, of appointments in football is often seems so subjective and guttural and just, you know, often there's nepotism, old boys, necklace. It's a very vague, weird, um, given the money in football yeah. management, it's very strange. You know, there doesn't seem to be necessarily a rigorous interview process that, you know, an advert like you would have necessarily in panels of selection committees you would have in a regular profession, particularly one that, where you're paying the employee so much. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very much who you know, isn't it? It's, it's very much, you know, people used to ring up Alex Ferguson. <laughs> I don't know if they still do. And basically ask for a recommendation. And you think, yeah. well, is that really the process for, you know, given, as you say, given the profile, given the money, given the importance mm. of the jobs, you know, the, the chief executive of Coca-Cola is not appointed on that basis. Surely. No, no. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they are. Phone call. Oh, do you fancy this job? Yeah. Is that kind <laughs> of, uh, well, you're too busy at the moment? Or do you, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very strange world football and hopefully it will evolve in that sense to be more objective in terms of its selection process and management. What are you hoping for? Because reading this, John, as we get older, we have these rose tinted glasses for the, mm -hmm. the glory years. And it tends to be, I think, when you're about 12 or 13, or when your first international tournament what you believe was the, the, the halcyon time of football do you do you still enjoy football going forward what are the things that, that you're concerned about because I suppose the evolution of football you mentioned it in the mob days was the sort of extreme violence and physicality but we're seeing that maybe stamped out of the Premier League and in a sense with the Premier League with that and VAR I always feel that it's in danger of becoming a different sport in some senses than, than the rest of us playing though I don't know whether you feel that a little bit yeah, um, I think one of the things that gets me at the moment is I wonder about the identity of the British game. It's it's mm. a it's a fine line to to tread, isn't it? Because I, I watch a lot of Spanish football, as you know, and I, I sometimes put the German football on BT, and I'm thinking, what's the difference between these top flights now? Yeah. Have, have, have they just become homogenized? Mm. And then my 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 fear, with, along with everybody else, as I think came through the the Ozil discussion, is that it's just dominated by high finance. That that would be the worst thing for football. Mm. I think we've got to remember to look after the identity of the game, which is the supporters uh, in in our country, the grassroots of the game. Now we talked about the the girls' game, so young you know you know young females as it were. Um, um, thriving but I think the the young man so the grassroots game played by blokes in their teens and their 20s I think is in a poor state I think it hasn't been looked after it's anecdotal isn't it I don't see as many kids playing as I used to and I don't know yeah, actually they were yeah. in a pandemic so people aren't technically allowed and to pubs don't have the teams in, in the way that they used to have again back 30 years ago when you were playing pub football on a weekend yeah. so I think there's a real danger there that we just end up as this high financed televised sport that looks the same in England as it does in Spain and Italy and that we lose some of the depth of the sport particularly in our country the brilliant thing about British football it goes deep and it's right in the community I read a, I read a book about from a, a political environmentalist and, and he was painting this rosy picture oh wouldn't it be great if we had this community of people where people from different backgrounds came together and they worked together on project and i'm thinking that's football mate yeah. that, that, that's what yeah. we had that's that's yeah. football you know it is a brilliant thing sunday morning and, and you're close from the night out before you know yeah. the night before that and, brilliant you know so. a, 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 a 48 year old bloke running a team of seven-year-old girls you know that kind of thing is that brilliant community network and and so the danger is that it's just you know, a, a super agents moving the same mm. players and the same managers around the same super teams. I think 
there is a resistance to that, but money often gets its way, and that's that's a real danger. The the super the, the European Super League would be a disastrous notion. I hope that we all draw a line somewhere against the the you know, the, the the march of high finance into football. Yeah, I think football as a spectacle only really is relevant as an inspiration to participation and involvement you know, as a youngster and, and what the game can give you. I think that's where the complement of, of the professional game goes. And it's interesting because a boss of mine at Sky Sports, I remember him talking about diversity of thought. And we think of diversity in, in sort of very narrow social demographic terms at the moment, rightly so in, in lots of ways. But that's interesting in the approach to football. You say the similarity between the top leagues. I've embraced going down to my local club, Cheltenham Town, quite a lot, actually, in League Two. And, and there's sort of in lots of ways, evoking memories of, of that era of growing up watching football, the smell of the chips, you can walk in five minutes beforehand, there is a slight enhanced physicality to it, there's some people playing long balls, Cheltenham are trying to play football, but there's people playing balls into channels, and I think, oh, that's what English football was when we were growing up, and actually, diversity of approach, we don't all have to, why would you play like Pep Guardiola to try and beat Pep Guardiola, there has to be a, a nuance and a counterpoint, doesn't there, I think that's interesting, when I see teams who are less financed, trying to imitate the big boys in the same way. I wonder about that, you know, whether there's, in a way, there's a, a slight compliance that, that actually is self-defeating for some clubs and some leagues. Yeah, yeah. That you, you now see, because again, I watch a lot of kids' football, uh, and you're seeing kids who aren't, simply aren't good enough getting the ball down, putting it you know, the, the, so the goalkeeper puts it in the six-yard box and, and plays a two-yard pass, <laughs> and then they get dispossessed and concede a goal. And you're thinking, well, hang on, you know, yeah. as you say, diversity of thought, right? So so that's what they're teaching you on a coaching course because that's what Pep Guardiola did because that's what Paco Hemeth did at Rayo Vallecano yeah. and Pep took that that's from what, him. That's what, Edison, that. that's what Edison can do more importantly, isn't it? That's the, the keeper. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe, maybe there is a different way to play it, um, and and don't all become automatons. Don't all go down the same path. Try and you know keep some keep some identity. Crucially, mm. keep some fun. Which, to be fair to the FA, I think in most of their directions towards coaches, they do they emphasise the fun element. And I think it's we we the collective um, parent and coach community need to keep an eye on not removing the fun. Yeah, uh, from from kids football and from football in general I think you know you, you mentioned VAR briefly the, the main thing about VAR it, you know is that is it taking away from the entertainment value of the game and if it is it's a problem mm. yeah certainly I think the fun element's been brought home during the pandemic actually because Premier League's been on wall to wall and actually yeah. the viewing figures have been great I think for escapism for a lot of people it's been really important yeah, although I'm I'm struggling a bit. I, you, know, I, you know, as I say, I watch every Saturated. single Premier League game, uh, and I'm, and then I'm I'm trying. I watch just about every Spanish game, either in full or in highlights fashion. And without fans, I'm I'm thinking, oh, yes, come on, but can we just? I know we can't. And, you the know, Euros, yeah. we're hoping the Euros, aren't we? That's the the key, I think. Yeah, and that would be, it. Would it would be brilliant? But you know, I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm not advocating we do it too early because what I don't want to do is like. It, the, the hokey cokey in and out, in and out. Yeah, have fans mm. over now. We can't all of that. I don't want that. So you know, but yeah, get it right. Yeah. But get the fans back. Yeah, for the clubs as well. We know a lot of the lower league clubs went through that dance in the mid part of the season where they planned to get people yeah. back, spent a lot of money, and then had to you know abandon ship because of the rise in the, the infection rates and stuff. So we hope that when it's done, it's it's done, and people can invest and and get the, the safety aspects of it secure. John Driscoll, been an absolute pleasure talking through these players. I know we haven't been able to make or manage all 50, but how much have you enjoyed the book and, and where can we 
where can we get it most importantly uh, yeah uh, you know what yeah well, I'm, I'm proud of having written it I, I look at it and i like it and the feedback has been good i'd like to i'd like to sell some more copies obviously um so <laughs> uh, so it's, it's published by pitch publishing but it's, it's on amazon uh, so yeah. yeah my name so john driscoll uh, and then it's the 50 football's most influential players uh, if, if i had one regret i'm not quite sure about the, the having the 50 because when you search it you get 50 shades of gray and 50, 50 everything oh, okay so uh, yeah so uh, you're looking so, at something different with that yeah <laughs> so yeah uh, the 50 football's most influential players yeah and if, if yeah um if you live anywhere near me i've still got uh, uh, half a box and it's, there, got, but, yeah. it's got the red cover, hasn't it? It's right. It has. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a lovely cover. Yeah, yeah. An artist called Duncan Olner produced that, who works with Pitch as a freelancer. So yeah, I've, I've, you know, I'm proud of how it looks. It's a, it's a lovely looking book. The feedback's been good. People have enjoyed it. People, you know, have come back to me with with details and by all means argue, you know, you know, with the choices because you could have taken a different path. You, and you all got that. Pele on the front, Megan Rapinoe, Lionel Messi popping out the five. Who's the player in the zero there? And there's right. Like, now this depends who you which copy you've got. So if you're look you're looking at the electronic version, that's that's the first draft and it's a mistake. Okay. Um, that is the wrong Bosman um, ah. because uh, when it came back, so basically um, Duncan said, right, who's who's in it? So I gave him some names and then he said, so what about this? And he came back and I, quite why that is the electronic version, I don't know because on the if you buy a copy, uh, it's it's been replaced with uh, Pushkas because that's John Bosman who played for Ajax, not the um, Bosman so from the, not, uh, uh, the yeah, 1995 yeah. transfer. Yeah. So Jean Marc Bosman is in the book, obviously with the story of how he changed the, the world of transfers. Yeah. Um, so you know, when it came back, you know, we said, uh, hang on, that's the that's the wrong guy. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, but it had sort of survived in some of the electronic versions that you see knocking around. Good man. Well, John, I really appreciate your time and I look forward to getting a copy of the, the actual book. But I really enjoyed the, the PDF version that I flicked through and I love football history. And I think it's a really important read for all of us. And, and again, the connection with the, the fabric of society as well, which football has been a part of now for in mob sense, like we say, going back thousands of years, but in, in real sort of real terms, organized fashion, 100 and, 150 years. Yeah, great talking to you, Ed. Thank you for, thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think at the heart of it, it's, it's great when you resonate and chime with someone. John's a little bit older than me, but if, if a generation when you can remember the joy of seeking out football information where it wasn't in your phone, in a smartphone, it was on in your pocket in a smartphone, sorry, it was having to, to get books at Christmas about the history of the game or Charles Hughes tactics as redundant as some people might see those tactics now in terms of the, the direct style of play that was advocated in the 1980s football manuals but just the, the history books about Manchester United read about Munich and the Busby Babes as a kid I read about Billy Meredith a little bit as well I had the official history of Manchester United book I've got different books now I've got a photo book actually about documenting football in the 20th century and just love that from the 1860s where it split with rugby union Aussie rules football ultimately American football in the States they didn't have the forward pass I don't think in American football until 1906 when they sort of I guess revolutionized their scrimmage so you see I just I just love the history of it and it's great to speak to someone like John Driscoll real aficionado of uh, the game and a great commentator follow him on and look up for his podcast as well that he does with the former Wimbledon and Manchester United striker Terry Gibson who's also worked as a scout in Spain and Terry's a, a, a La Liga aficionado as well they have a podcast so make sure you check that out and look up the book the 50 as well thank you to John thank you to you for listening to the podcast if you could rate it on iTunes if you enjoyed it that would be fantastic much appreciated and uh, just tell someone if you enjoy it as well pass it on you can follow me on social media ed draper 81 ed underscore draper 81 on instagram and by the way it may not be uh, itunes as well you're listening on whatever platform you are i think there's 12 13 platforms maybe the podcast goes out on including spotify and acast and all those good places in the uh 
ever-expanding internet world. Thank you for the sponsors as well. To the sponsors, Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. We've got a few months of relative lockdown still to go, haven't we? Even though the kids are back at school today, uh, there is liberty in sight. But in the meantime, we're trying to maximise your home environment. And it might be uh, musically trying to get some good music on. Check out Jason Briggs and his team through Bang Olufsen Cheltenham and uh, see what they can source for you in terms of uh, some sort of bespoke entertainment stereo system, whatever it may be. Thank you to, to them again. Really appreciate their support for the past year. Thank you to Cytoplan Association with the podcast. It's great to work with a supplement company that we've been taking for 20 years and continue to pay for, albeit at the discount price that I've offered you today as well. Draper 10R, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, one zero capital letter R. And I get a few, not that I've got a massive following on social media, but I get a few direct messages from people asking for me to endorse other supplements. And I just think it's impossible to do so unless you've had a long experience of taking them. And I haven't got a control group. There's not another Draper family somewhere that hasn't been taking supplements to, to sort of testify as to their health outcomes over the past 20 years. But certainly, I think allied to obviously built upon good sleep, exercise, diet, I think it can complete the picture for you health-wise, at least as long as we're as long as we're here, isn't it? We don't know how long we've got on this earth, but I think trying to live well and healthy is the key. And then maybe stave off things like COVID nineteen as they come up has made it all the important, more important of how we how we live and how we are and our body mass index and our general health, I think, has been brought into the light quite dramatically in the past 12 months. Anyway, I hope you're well. If you do want that discount code, go to cytoplan.co.uk, C Y T O P L A N dot co. UK Draper 10R is the discount code D R A P E R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero, and the capital letter R. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Hope you have a wonderful week. I'm hoping to speak to former Blackburn and Scotland defender Colin Henry this week, and then a boxing trainer, a steam boxing trainer who steered Tony Bellew to a world title, Dave Coldwell. And then I'm going to probably put those up next week or the end of this week, one of them. But we'll see. I hope you're well, guys. Have a great week. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.